For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. All right, I got some questions for you. How much is enough? I love this idea of enoughness, right? And sufficiency, they're very buzzy words right now. How can creatives incorporate that in their output? If you make physical objects, what does it really mean to be sustainable in your practice? And how can you, as my guest this week, Richard Malone puts it, do your own thing and stick to it in the context of this relentless push for newness? Also, where does class and privilege play into all of this? Does fashion, with a capital F, actually want to be more inclusive and welcoming? Or is all the talk of breaking down barriers just lip service? I mean, we know the fact is that many of the people who make it in fashion have had a head start. I mean, what do you reckon? There's just evidence everywhere, right? I was thinking about Nepo babies, the current obsession with Nepo babies. People have had it handed to them on a plate, right? Let's not pretend that the playing field is level in the arts, in fashion, in all of these kind of creative industries. Some people just get a head start. It's it's annoying, but that's what the system delivers. So we're going to really unpack that in this interview with Richard Malone. He's brilliant. He's a London-based Irish artist, fashion designer and maker. He's known for his very sculptural, really fascinating, actually, draping. He used to show at London Fashion Week. I was lucky enough to go to his shows at Fashion East, so good. He studied at St. Martin's and he's he's won a bunch of prizes and his work is held in major art museum collections. And yet I would call him an anti-establishment designer. So even though the establishments embraced him, he is just, like he says, doing his own thing and sticking to it. And his work is political, even though it's subtly done. So he's not got slogans on his work, talking about class barriers. And yet I think that everything he does, because it is so personal, pushes back on these ideas of unfair advantages and asks questions about what sort of world we want to build. Listen out for when he talks about Ireland's textile industry and how colonisation affected women's traditional textile skills. So natural dyeing and linen and stitching and craft. Losing the craft, he says, coincided with losing the language. There's so so much stuff in this, actually. I couldn't work out what to focus on in the intro. (laughs) I could pull out like 10 things for the sound grabs that we put on our Instagram tiles. So look, it's a long one, but I think it's a joy. I just couldn't bear to cut any of it out. So listen to it in two parts if you want. I'll try and keep the intro short. How about that? (laughs) I will just say you're in for a treat with the next three episodes because they all explore kind of different facets of this idea of what fashion is for and what it does and how it relates to class and barriers and status and identity. I reckon all these three guests, so Richard and then upcoming Karen Franklin and Rahimur Rahman, to me they're kind of fashion philosophers helping us make sense of the world. I love it. Before I wrap up, I will just share a word on privilege. I think this is a pretty good definition. I found it from an old New York New York Magazine article. Privilege is when some benefit from unearned and largely unacknowledged advantages, even when those advantages aren't discriminatory, although they often are. So consider white privilege, male privilege, class privilege. I mean, the list goes on. It basically means some get preferential treatment that is undeserved and unfair. And these unearned benefits and advantages, they all add up to members of dominant groups as a result of of ongoing exploitation, right, and oppression. They continue to dominate. But the reason I wanted to share this definition is there's another meaning, a sort of third, secondary or third meaning of that word privilege that is a bit nicer. (laughs) It's that we can also use it to show appreciation, right? Like when we, like when someone gives a speech and they get introduced and we go, it's my great privilege to introduce Richard Malone or it's my great privilege to meet you. So it does sound old fashioned, but I kind of like it and I'm going to invoke it here. It's conversations like these with people like Richard that keep me doing the podcast. And it is my great privilege to bring them to you. 
don't forget to tune in next week to hear from Karen Franklin and the week after for Rahimur. Now, let's go around for a cup of tea with Richard Malone. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Richard Malone. We're in your studio. Yes, we are. And it's very sunny. Thanks and for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming all this way. Um, actually, just tell us where we are, because it's quite interesting. It's a new design district. Yeah, it's a design district in North Greenwich, which is sort of various architects design various buildings. And it's trying to bring, I guess, people to the area. So a lot of creatives have moved in and we're above a sort of amazing charity called Queer Circle. And like we've got lots of lovely neighbours who are in the same position as me. And actually, I walked past and there was an intriguing happening. There were all these kids tying ribbons and it was so colourful. And I was like, what is that? And it's Matty Bovin's oh, yes. ribbons exhibition. Yes, at Now Gallery. So that's kind of how I first came where I did a sh- uh, the same exhibition a couple of years ago. And they sort of support more artistic commissions and it's very, very sort of communal and it's very um, free, I think, which is, again is very rare in London. <laughs> Before we begin, what are your preferred pronouns? I prefer they, them or he, him, but I get a sort of range. So if my hair grows out, I always get she or her. So I don't really mind pronoun wise. Um, it doesn't, uh, it's not something I put a lot of value in. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Let's begin with a bit of storytelling around your work. I'm loving that I can see not only your women's wear pieces over mm-hmm. there, I can see patterns, which is all how it begins. I can see texture. I really want to talk about that ribbon <laughs> and the draping. But I can also see pieces from a recent art exhibition, a monumental art <laughs> exhibition that you worked on. Do you want to give us a brief glimpse into your work and how you see it? Yeah, I was going to start with that because I used okay. to think of you as a leading fashion designer in sustainability. Yeah. But actually on your Instagram, you say artist. Yeah, I think I've always had it as art or artist. And, you know, the funny thing is I came from a more art background. And when I I was actually in Wales doing a course after doing a PLC course, so it's sort of for when you're young or it's like a free course that you can do. You can get it from like job seekers essentially as well. So you go in and you do like art and it's kind of focused for a year. Um, And that led me on to going to Wales to do fashion. And then I met my partner there and he was on the art course and I sort of joined the art course unofficially and did all sorts of things and then applied to St. Martin's. And all through that course, I was really focusing on, I think, performance and all of these different I know, like thinking about the body and thinking about adornment and thinking about my place within an identity. And um, so the first real collection I made was my graduate collection. Even though I've always had a love of clothes and textiles and fashion and fabric, it led me down a path. But I think my intentions are always mixed. And I think I've always made clothes with a sort of artistic intention. And I think sometimes that's really clear in some of the cutting techniques. And mm. I guess I chose women's wear because I knew it was a glamorous thing as I knew it was a very difficult course to get into and it was a challenge but it was also taught by a performance artist and a portrait artist Anna Nicole Zaitch and Howard Tangi who's Australian (laughs) um, oh yeah and he's fantastic and he's still a really good friend of mine but that openness of dialogue between different practices really that's always been something that's like very true to me because I don't really believe in those binary ways of thinking. I was about to or say making. we're so <laughs> determined to put everyone in a box and yeah. label them their work. In you're a designer, so therefore stay over there. Yeah, and yeah. I'm so naive. Like I'm from a very small place in like rural Wexford, and I thought that when me and Tom, my boyfriend, uh, applied to art school, he'd be he was doing sculpture and I was doing women's wear, and I thought we'd just sort of swap over and do a bit of everything, and that's not the case. Richard, may I ask you to tell us about the show? Making in momentum. Making and momentum. Making and momentum. And who is Eileen Gray? Well, Eileen Gray was a sort of radical Irish architect, designer, maker, cross-disciplinary practice, who, interesting to me, is that she was making at the time of the Irish Civil War, where Ireland got independence. And after that, there was this real focus on... Irish things being popular in Ireland. So like the, you know, you think about Irish writers, Seamus Heaney and Oscar Wilde and all of these sort of romantic ways of writing. The same was applied to design and I guess fonts and letters. And, yeah, like flourishing, like an interesting, And yeah. like beautiful historical looks Celtic or whatever. And Eileen Gray had this practice where she did like introduce chrome and celluloid and all of these incredible materials to quite simple beautiful furniture and was sort of painted as a modernist but much later in her life. Um, 
massively overlooked. You know, she's not on the curriculum in Ireland and she's not on the curriculum here and she really should be. But um, a brilliant woman a as brilliant well. brilliant female queer um, artist. And like she had, there's all of these amazing stories about her. She's very private actually, which I found really interesting. But um, my grandmother used to tell me about Eileen Gray because she was from Wexford and she was this famous artist or designer. Um, and I think she left out the part that she was a sort of, Protestant landowner, very, very, very wealthy family. So she went to art school in the Slade and then she lived in Paris and she didn't really have to like work alongside that. She had a lot of money. And my grandmother had a sort of story that she would tell me about her and how she kind of made this life, but always left out that she was loaded. And I, I understand that now is like, I think she's allowing me to imagine myself in that position, which it really did help. And then like in a weird coincidence, after my grandmother had passed away, I was at a dinner and they asked me to do a show at Eileen Gray's Villa E1027 which is like a modernist masterpiece in the south of France and it was to oh, sort wow. of it was really mind-blowing to me and it, it was just started as a conversation and then it became this thing and I, I was very adamant that it couldn't be a show of my work on my own because I think that's really egotistical and mad and wouldn't make sense she's got such a far-reaching body of work and she was worked right into her 90s and we curated the show about Irish modernism but for me that links all the way back to pre-colonial Ireland and thinking about modernism in sort of accepting ideas of the ether or like developing a visual language that isn't just about sort of servicing our hunger for like knowledge or how we sort of PR things now you know it was really about developing this visual language away from things and thinking of ideas related to like the rural or craft really so a lot of things was developing um handwoven uh, fabrics in the Mourn Mountains um and then I we did a screen with Neve O'Malley who's an amazing sculptor um who represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale we had Laura Gannon, who's an artist based between West Cork and London, and she makes these incredible linen pieces, but they're oh, it sounds it's wonderful. metallic. It was so rewarding. It. Where did it go? It moved around, right? Yeah, so it started at E1027 and then it moved to another show in France and then it moved to the National Museum in Dublin. Then it came back to Wexford, which is where we're both from. Um, and I got really amazing access to some of her archives as well, where you see like the person behind it and understanding that some of her most famous furniture is that um she just wanted to make it for like living so like one of the things was she wanted to eat toast in bed she wanted <laughs> to be in the shade and it's like this really relatable stuff but people look at it like oh my god Eileen Gray she's a genius I and love that like, you told me that when we walked into this office you said we were talking about architecture <laughs> and we were talking about the fact that you can't open the windows yes and we're saying <laughs> architects can make beauty but they don't always consider every practical element function and, that's actually what they're there for. But I love this idea that actually she made things because she wanted to eat toast yeah. in bed. And one was the, like her table. There's a famous <laughs> table in the house because they restored the house. It fell into disrepair and they restored the house and she had like cork on the table because she didn't like cutlery and the sound of noise when people were eating, which I love because I totally get it. And she's just this radically independent <laughs> person. And it made, made me think of a lot of things like if my grandmother had had an education beyond her being like eight, would she have done it like and that's the kind of value of education and access. I bet you wish you'd met her. I do. And I feel like being that engaged, like it was meant to happen because there was this, this these weird links. And I actually brought, my grandmother used to paint stones as um, sort of things to sell to tourists. And I brought those to the show as well. So they paint were stones. Stones, yeah. So what, they were like what, what stones with? to look like animals or something. Yeah. And like, they were amazing, but like they're, what well, outsider art, what people would call them or something. And they went to each show as well. I think she would just have, her mind would be blown that her work was shown alongside that. But that's important. And like, it's important to show that both of those things have value and they're totally valuable. And I, I remember after dinner in Wexford, I think Neve and I were talking, it's just thinking that these sort of radical artists now in Ireland are all sort of from rural places. And it's really led by queer people and women. And I think that maybe is because of the, policy changes that have happened yeah. in Ireland, and queer marriage and repudiation. would not have happened 10, 15 I don't think it would have happened ago. 20 years ago, but I think Ireland has this, the class system is less apparent there. So I think it has less reliance on it. So maybe there's more space to have these changes. And like when there's a, it's a, a real tradition of sort of uprising there. So when there's a problem, people really take to the streets. And I think those changes have changed completely the cultural imagination of the place. Have you paused ready to wear? Not, I don't know if I, I think I pause doing shows, certainly, um, but I still make clothes and I've always made clothes on 
commission. You know, I saw in a that sense. On, online, so you can look on there and make an appointment. Exactly, and it's always been like that. I think if I was being totally transparent, the reason people do seasonal shows is in London often to get the sponsorship because in order to get money to make the collections and put on the shows, you have to sort of commit to showing on season because your value as a designer is bringing exciting people to London to maybe buy the boring stuff, if that makes sense. Wow. And I think I really, I didn't think that at the beginning, I was like, oh, great, there's like a pocket of like two grand or something for me to do a show. Woo. And then you were <laughs> woo, lucky me. And I've always made things on an absolute shoestring. I think people are always so shocked because I'd see the shows and they're in these really big venues and they think there's a team of 60 behind it and there's probably a team of five. You know, and a lot of the stuff in the show I'll sew and make myself and I'll do all the cutting. So it's this really small scale operation that's put on a really big platform that never quite matched. You know, like what like I think people just think that fashion is this thing that can happen by itself. You know, like it just appears in a six minute sort of show. And my practice is very different than that, I think. That show cycle fuels, obviously fuels the newness obsession. Yeah, and I think... It's really strange coming out of a school like St. Martin's because you understand your newness, I think. And like the the hot young thing, the hot young thing. And like even for me, I think I was always in any context in the years that I was showing, I was always the sort of weird one, which I like. Like I'm quite comfortable being the weird one, but it never was like, you know, the sort of luxury sports where it was never like the strappy, sexy thing or it was never 90s and then it was never noughties. It was just this thing that I did. So I feel like I'm quite lucky to have that as part of the core of who I am where I'll just do my own thing and stick to it um and it's really damaging like that cycle of trend is one of the most damaging things that that thing you just said about it's the noughties then it's the 90s it's mad but that's how it works isn't it it's so volume skinny yeah (laughs) y2k yeah and it's so obvious and that's disappointing to me you know there's a certain pressure when something happens people start altering their work to look a bit like the new thing and that's always a scary thing to me. And also it's a, when people say the 90s, I think, or the noughties, like 90s is a time when women's bodies were under extreme scrutiny. And like we were literally taking pictures of naked children to sell denim jeans. And it was horrible. And then you think of the noughties and it's like the comedy of like what Britney used to wear, Christina used to wear, when they're being scrutinised every day for being young women in music with little autonomy. Why would like, you want to go back? Why would you want to go back? Like, mm-hmm. and, and actually, what I'd like to say to some writers and journalists is like, images are important. What you share on your social media is important because you have a new, a new sort of knowledge and a new critical understanding doesn't mean everyone does. It's still an image that exists in the world. Did you think that about the kind of dropped silhouette down, exposing the hips, the mew, mew, mini mini in the 90s Britney all that I hate like I I hate it in a way like I, I have such strong reactions to it because it's it's the obviousness of it and it's the paid for content of it you never really know if anyone likes something anymore and that's <laughs> like I couldn't tell you who specific people are because people who I maybe thought were really great writers are now influencers and that's a very different thing and I think that people don't take the weight of influence seriously enough. Like that's a really serious thing. And it shouldn't just be about you selling things because so many people will see it and experience it and it's be able to assess if something is good or not. And I think if it's something that's like really problematic body image or really problematic treatment of women, stop it. And that's enough, you know? And like the glamorizing heat magazine or any of those things or like news of the world sort of headlines no, like absolutely not. And there should be some, yeah. I'm, I'm disappointed there's no legislation for that. Well, it's also that fashion sort of wry, wink and oh, aren't we ironic yeah. kind of take on this, which actually doesn't work. I mean, we've seen it didn't work with some of the worst examples of brands face planting. Think about Balenciaga, thinking mm. they're being funny with the teddy bear bags. Yeah. There's something unexamined isn't there which I think is because too many people in this industry have been allowed to get away with their insider jokes without a lot of scrutiny or accountability from outside and I think it plays into sustainability too Mm -hmm. they're just there's too much of a bubble yeah and that bubble that sort of bubble I think I've seen in Britain like being here from a different country is 
the bubble of absolute privilege. It's like you're never going to be reprimanded. And even like, it's a lot of very wealthy people. And when I came into, I think it was 2015 that I released, or no, it was 2016 that I properly started, I suppose. Literally, the designers were from a selection of streets in West London. Like they were neighbours. And that goes for models, casting directors, um, sons and daughters of famous people all living on sort of around Westbrook Grove, Ladbroke Grove. And like, that's so isolating to someone not from here. Do you know what I mean? That that's, those are the people who get to do it because it's a hobby almost. It's an isolating clique. Yeah, it's an isolating clique. And I think perpetuating those images and that wry wink thing, which still happens now. Like, I don't know if anyone actually thinks this naughty's revival is good or if it's like, sort of a funny thing to spend thousands of pounds to look awful. And, and you just know how fleeting it is. Like you can look at it and go, well, will the next thing be like sort of the Amy Winehouse thing or that, like whatever the next thing is that was popularized at the time that was just pop culture, you know, and tabloid press. And it's really unnuanced, actually. Is it a determined act of resistance to say, as you do from a design perspective, mm-hmm. I'm not listening. I've got what I'm doing and it evolves at its own pace. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's like a really quiet resistance because I, when I do things, I really commit to them. And if I was to be an activist or something, I'd have gone into law. But I'm understanding. Really? I think so. Yeah, I think because that's where more change happens. Like a lo- conversation doesn't really make change. <laughs> so you know? true. Oh my God. <laughs> and like actually... Being one of the people who can implement it is so powerful and like I'm so respectful of that if you're doing it in the right way. So I think it's, yeah, I don't want activist topics to be landed on one person and I don't want to be um, physically the face of something because it feels like it's almost branded, some activism. And I think to quietly do your own thing is very, very rare, actually. (laughs) I agree. I agree. We're going to talk about how you do fashion and clothing but I want to talk about what you just did recently we Mm -hmm. tried to do this interview last year but you weren't here you were really busy in Ireland Mm -hmm. you're working on an exhibition at Ormston House in Limerick yeah you created sculptures made from draped jersey and said the I'm reading this because I, I got the quote here which I love the idea was to explore the limits of language and semantic form in understanding the human condition examining ideas of queer identity, class, otherness, and gendered labour practices. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, I think for me, in in clothes making, the body is always like a talking point and or it's displayed on the body. And also the image of fashion is a two-dimensional thing or less. You know, so like you put a lot of time into the cutting or construction it's never seen you're always sort of cognizant that it's going to be this flat thing Mm. and it's gotten less and less and smaller and smaller and I think I've always really been nurtured by conversations and craft and textile like I didn't grow up with access to art or education um like neither of my parents got their A-levels essentially here and my grandmother didn't get an education beyond I think she was eight and that was quite normal for that part of Ireland it's not abnormal. And me and my brother, I think, were the first ones to really go to university. And that was like spurred on by my dad and my mom kind of forcing us through it. And I think I'm been aware of like my place within it and understanding identity and also understanding the environments where I'm from. Like I, when I first got here, people were like, working class is this bad thing. Or like, poor you, like, so ama- are you get so amazing that you're here? Because there was honestly about four students in St. Martin's that were working class. Um but also like it's this really, for me, it's a really beautiful thing. Like it's it's really great to have your own perspective. And like I grew up with gendered labour practices in the sense that like I was sort of not conforming to any gender identity, but I could observe when I worked with my dad on building sites, that's a masculine environment and there's a materiality to that language. And when I was taught to wow. kind of... And that's Pause so true. on that, yeah. so interesting. <laughs> um, and then like my grandmother is a seamstress for the local hospital and she would make curtains or whatever in her spare time as well as doing the work in the hospital and there's a language to that gendered space where females sew or create and um, men build and men build and it's sometimes <laughs> it is that simple and it's very performative you know it's really and that really fascinated me it was like oh this is like and men it was really matriarchal almost because women really 
had the power, I think, in my family. Like my mom's from a family of seven or eight and my dad's the same, but like my mom's very close to their sisters and they'd have these environments where they talk about everything and they encourage everything. And I always associate creativity with those female spaces because they encouraged it. Even though there was no knowledge around it, they were just like, here's a pen draw. And I would literally draw from before I could talk. And my grandmother was the one that taught me stitch and sewing and like all of these really beautiful things. And they're really linked culturally to the craft of Ireland. You know, I grew up yeah. with linen factories on my doorstep or, and there was a lot of people employed with them. And my, we lived on a sort of the house that my grandparents lived in, which was like a two up, two down. And across the street was a metalwork plant, wherever like my grandfather worked there. And then he had an injury, so he couldn't work anymore. But um, my point is all of these factories employed people and they created a sense of community. And then they started closing down. Of course. The story of industry closing down is actually such a formative one when we think about how we live our lives, because now we've all moved into service industries. We don't yeah. make things in the way that mm -hmm. we used to make them um, in so many communities. And when you take that away and everybody serves coffees or works in a call centre, yeah. there seems to be some vacuum that's left where the connective tissue has yeah. been disrupted, where no one makes that's anything it. anymore. I don't even know if it's also about insecurity because you don't know... Your skill has changed. Like you're, you're almost. Or your skill's not valued. Yeah, it's not valued, and it's not valued by. You're disposable yeah. because those service industries are just churn. Yeah, but then maybe factories were also churn. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a really hard thing to observe as well because I really value it. But when you watch people retrain, it's almost like you, it's like a devaluation of the self. You know, and like all of these things in Ireland come from a really beautiful place. Like I'm talking pre-colonial Ireland, where like. There's natural dyeing and regenerative farming really naturally. There's like macrame and linen and weaving and they were all connected to language and place. And then, of course, when, say, the British came in in over 800 years, you lost the language and the people who got to choose what was actually kept in the language or translated to English was men. So a lot of the terminology for female spaces really? and things weren't kept. Was lost. Even know. Yeah, a lot of things were lost through that. And then again, this sort of capitalization. Like I know that one of the things that really changed Ireland is when like Dell and Apple started coming to Ireland because it was tax break. Like there was no economy. You know, it was a really extremely poor country until the 80s. And like, and that is very extreme. But seeing that and like what that actually means and kind of, I just think I always loved say my grandmother had such a value for stitch and craft. You're severing those connections with a long culture of doing, mm -hmm. aren't you? Yeah, it is. And it's like there's an amazing book by Fintan O'Toole called We Don't Know Ourselves. And that's a kind of play on the Irish expression, like you hardly know yourself. But um, it really explains how loss of identity through this capitalization and Americanization. It's really interesting that you're bringing that back to craft and the, the very practical idea of making stitching, sewing... Yeah. And I think it's like there are things that are in the ether that I don't didn't realize until I was an adult or more so an adult that they're really the the things I have to play with. That's all. Like there isn't there was never an introduction to like designers or artists or whatever. What I what I actually seen of fashion was Alexander McQueen and John Galliano because they would be in the tabloid press that you would get in the sun or the star on a building site. Like that's what and I was always sort of it was a bit of a mockery thing, you know, which I understand as well. Like, totally, oh, like who'd wear this? Yeah, who'd wear yeah, this crazy yeah. thing? Um, but you weren't picking up Vogue in the shop. I the wasn't picking shop. up Vogue in the paper shop. shop. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> news agent. <laughs> news agent. No, I wasn't. Um, and I still don't really like it because I think it's not an interest I've ever really had because it's so much about selling product. And I think maybe I understood it in a sort of, you know, the value of logos in working class communities is very different. So I think I understood looking status. at... Status. Yeah, status. So understanding... Well, status everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. But there's like subtleties to it. Whereas in the the things that would reach me would be like when Louis Vuitton would do this sort of multicolor stuff. And it was like this really tacky, poppy thing. And it was really obvious, you know, like what that is and who the demographic that might buy it is. And I think that reached me because it would be on the back of magazines and you'd see those huge campaigns, even in Wexford, you know, or I'd understand Chanel because it's like in the perfume shop, in the boots when we got boots. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, how brands filter out and what they represent if you're not mm -hmm. in that bubble. Yeah, exactly. The and perfume I think, counter, like you say, the, yeah. Or, and it's like, 
status, like I was thinking about a, a certain kind of status, which I don't even know who wants it, but <laughs> I always notice when I go for a walk that men who are not very interested in clothes or to look at them, you wouldn't think they're very interesting clothes, yeah. just normal, ordinary blokes going yeah. on a dad walk, yeah. often wearing T-shirts with things like Calvin Klein written largely mm. across the front yeah. at Tommy Hilfiger. And you think, <laughs> what is it that makes you buy that? Do yeah. you think that, do you, do you think, wish that was your name? Do you know who that is? Like, yeah. what is it? It's not, I'm not talking about sort of Nike, but like American designer names, Ralph yeah. Lauren. <laughs> it's a weird <laughs> I think it's phenomenon. it's so weird. Do they yeah. just go to like the outlet store and say, oh, that's designer and it's cheap? Or do they think it represents something status-wise? I think it's connected to an old thing of sort of um, peacocking and adornment. Like this is my tribe or this is my culture or like I have the means now to buy something, you know? And like, I think if I was a teenager, I'd have really wanted to buy something from one of those brands because it communicates like a knowledge or something uh, it's yeah. quite otherworldly, yeah. you know, really, even though it's quite plain when you're actually there, <laughs> I think. Yeah. All right. So tell us a bit more about this exhibition. So actually, um, I looked up this place. It's super interesting. So it's in Limerick, obviously not in a fashion capital. No. But um, what they talk about in terms of their approach on their website is really Really cool, I thought. They're all about partnerships. They talk about this participatory model that connects the practice with local mm -hmm. knowledge and activism. So it's not a very conventional space, is it? Tell us about it, because it looks quite traditional no. as well. I mean, it looks quite traditional, but it's 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 really one of the most <laughs> rewarding places I've ever found myself working in terms of it was so nourishing to be with people who are creating this model of working. It's in a visual art and fine art capacity, um, which I kind of, flip over into lots of times it's kind of natural for me but they really give space to this and they're like Limerick isn't one of the fancy Irish cities it's not Dublin or Cork or Galway it's like but there's this connection between people that I think it's it's about studio visits and people supporting crafts and makers and like I met amazing sort of knife makers there or which is a traditional way of making knives called Hugh and then I met his partner who has a peanut butter brand that's like a sustainable peanut butter brand and like speaking to painters and it's this really egalitarian degrowth thing and the space isn't even about selling work it's about showing things that are ambitious and like you can really look at things that are about the self or self but I think they have a real space for queerness and gender identity and sexuality that's it's it's public in facing Ireland, in Ireland outside yeah. of the obvious city. Yeah. I just find this a really interesting conversation because I reckon there's so much sneeriness in the media mm -hmm. about the cultural capitals, whatever they be, Berlin, London, yeah. whatever, Dublin. But actually there's all this amazing stuff going on at a smaller level, a more local level all around the world. I all mean, I'm always so excited when I go to places and discover these things and they're new to me, not to them. There's so much vibrancy in local communities and yet there's this feeling that the only only at the epicenters does the magic happen or the art happen or the yeah. consequential happen. And that's untrue. That's because Definitely. of its access to mass media, I think. Whereas in even in Ireland, like when I go to Dublin and I before that show I had a show at the National Gallery and I was living in Dublin for nearly four months on a residency. And I just thought like I'm not from Dublin, I've never lived there, but um, that was my first time. And I just remember thinking, this is so sort of un-Irish, you know, and I, I really... the cosmopolitan Euro Yeah, city. it's just, it's really American and it's really oh. like, I think there's a certain pressure there where you have to compete directly with other artists and like a lot of people are doing the same thing or... And more I, money. And more, there's, there's... Yeah, but money makes corrupt. It does, <laughs> Sorry, it corrupts. No, it does. That's clearly my but values coming through But it's twisting there. your more... And like you, you have a certain pressure in cities, like your work has to somehow make you an income mm. so you can keep going. Having said that, I do think money corrupts. That's not really mm -hmm. a secret. But we do need money to fund art, the arts and fund our work. And mm -hmm. again, coming back to privilege, it's a privilege not to need it. It's such a privilege. And that's one of the things that I love in Ireland you know they just introduced this artist support uh, wage so I think 50% of people that applied for it got selected and it's where they're going to pay artists a living wage for three years really? and that's a three-year guaranteed salary which completely blows the lid off anything I mean and even seeing that and I live in London most of the year and I'm like that would never happen here how wonderful yeah and even like there's so much funding for arts council like getting 
out of the country and making links and like going to, you know, Ormston House to amazing partnerships in sort of Finland and Sweden and this really beautiful European model that brings people together. And I just feel like sometimes London feels so much more yeah. closed off than that. How interesting. That's yeah. inspiring. We haven't talked about what you showed. So oh, yes. <laughs> please describe. I showed like a lot of work that I hadn't shown before. So anyone who knows me knows that I've always had a sort of drawing sculptural practice or textile making and that show really focused on that um it focused on these sort of abstract forms and silhouettes and I was I was researching quite a lot into the Irish language and sort of pre-colonization in Ireland what it was how we communicated and like how we've lost a lot of that now through like who got to select what was translated into English and who got to select what was kept I suppose in the vocabulary and it was obviously like British men or people who were friends of the British men and Protestants essentially and it was really kind of interesting trying to consider that language isn't the only way to communicate and I think that that sort of ancient there's so many solutions in that really ancient way of doing things and there's loads of crossovers between Sanskrit and the Irish language and in mythology and sort of lessons that are about like not taking too much or lessons really? that are about regenerating the How land. absolutely riveting. It's really yeah. exciting and it's really interesting and it's I think that there's lessons in that that are really sort of poetic and that we should be applying to our contemporary life. You still haven't described what you made. Oh, yeah. What did I make? <laughs> I made... I'm looking at two of them behind you. Oh, so yeah. we should say that you're famous for your very personal, unique approach to the drape. Mm -hmm. But how would you, For this is always the limitations of an audio format, <laughs> but how would you describe what you made? Um, I made metal structures I think I made these sculptures that bring together quite freely the language that I grew up with which is learning about quite um functional heavy materials with my dad and in that environment with my uncles who are sort of builders and laborers ah, the metal frame the metal frame so like welding and I did a lot of that with my dad in Wexford in the same place I grew up and then sort of decorating with these really abstract draped forms which sort of remind you of what what do they remind me of? I, I think they remind me of something really domestic, always. And it's like this, it links me to like the space in my grandmother's house or in my aunt's house or something that's really sort of female and encouraging of creativity. But they're also, I suppose, making this genderless person or like confronting the person with these sort of silhouettes. And like maybe they're, about, they're sort of expressive in a way that we're not sure and like not really giving people all of the language because it started with these really abstract drawings. Can I say the word frilly? You can say frilly, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's something about the, it's it, again, we'll share lots of links so you can look <laughs> at the pictures, but there is something about the draping and the, like you say, to, to me, it's got quite a feminine mm -hmm. core to it, the way that the ruffles exist or the way that the draping is structured, right? With And then what you'd say yeah. about this kind of underpinning of the masculine yeah. framing. And they're all invented. All of those sorts of performance of gender in those spaces is completely invented. And I think even like the frilly things that are on the jackets over there, they're like, I, my grandmother, one of her many jobs was making rosettes for horses in horse shows. Did she? And I see it. Yeah. yeah. And that's like when people are in GAA, you would win like a badge or a, and it looks like that. It's like this ribbon thing and it's always overlooked or it's really fetishized. And that's the problem I always had with sort of working class identity. It's when I was in St. Martin's, it was always a sort of a lot of people looking at images from that space and being like, I want to make a large hoodie because it looks cool. And no one's ever been to those places or grown up in those places. And like they talk about the tracksuit, like and someone will write about the tracksuit who's never experienced those environments or really looked in depth into what those things communicate or mean. And it's I think uncomfortable, isn't it? It's it's not uncomfortable for those people. It was very uncomfortable for me. But I'm listening to you going, ooh, <laughs> yeah. it's making me crinkle up my it's forehead. It's icky. And I had a like I had, mm. remember like designers in London and stuff being like, Well, I'm working class because my parents once lived in a flat. I'm going, are you fucking joking? Like, I mean, and this is the depth of conversation. Or like, I'm actually working class because like, my parents are doctors. And I'm like, right. I don't think you're getting what it is. Just because you're having a hard time doesn't mean that you're... Like, it's, it, it is a class system and it's really obvious. And I think I only experienced it when I got to London. What barriers do you think are put up to close off these spaces for working class kids and creatives wanting to get in now? 
now it's the cost. Now it's education and it's the cost. I mean, a really straightforward example for me is that when I was coming to St. Martin's, I'd done a year in Wales. So I was like technically a European person coming here. So it was, the fees were cheaper than they were £3,000 a year. And I went to my local credit union with no, you know, savings or whatever. Like my parents don't have loads of properties or anything. There's no money there basically. And the most I could borrow was €3,000. And that covered one year. So, and since then, my life's been sort of dependent on prizes. But I always think if one of those prizes had fallen through, if I hadn't got the scholarship for final year, what would I have, what would I have done? So what did you win? You won a scholarship? I won the LVMH Grand Prix scholarship in my final year to do the final collection. And that was the first time I've been able to go into university without working loads of jobs. You know, like I worked in Weatherspoons in the pub. I worked in Whistles, which is kind of soul destroying where Kate Middleton shopped and it was awful. And I worked in, I did like freelance drawing for people. You know, I worked in a sort of horrible Italian deli as well. And I just think not a lot of people had to yeah, do that. A provisor here. I'm quite old. I went to university when there were no fees. I was a uh, part of a privileged generation, which was amazing because I went to university in Sheffield. I did politics and everybody on my course was from a different background yeah. because all you had to do to get in, of course, this is something, it's also a privilege, yeah. was do well at school. Yeah. So, you know, that is a barrier. Yeah. However, the financial barrier was not there. You worked to pay your rent. So we all that worked to yeah. pay the rent. But we didn't have to come up with these exorbitant fees. No, and they are isolating. Because even the year, if I'd gone to university the year after, I couldn't have gone. Like that, it, that is it. There would not have been another. What? I'm a bit out of touch actually. What it would fees, cost now? It went up to £9,000 a year. Is it? Just, and that's before you pay to live in London, you know. Um, so that terrifies me because I just don't like that even in that, at that time, I was on such a sort of knife edge. And for other people, that's just fine. You, you're racking up debt. You're also racking up, obviously, the pressure, mental pressure, like mm -hmm. how, because you've got to focus on your studies. You've got so many. You've got to live up to the expectation you've set yourself yeah. and your family has. But what then happens is that we're producing far too many fashion graduates without the jobs yeah. to push them into or to funnel them into. There aren't that many jobs. No. And, and we're also telling these kids still, I think, that the best end goal is to run your own label and be the name designer. And yeah. that's also, I mean, it's just... It's wrong. There's so much competition. It's not going to happen yeah. for everyone. And I think it's like, it's a really strange thing and like, we, I loved being in St. Martin's. I have to be quite honest with that. Like it was to have what I do valued so much. And like the, a lot of people who were from the sort of um, fancy private schools would go to the library and research something and have really polite sort of sketchbooks. And I think I spent like zero time in the library. So I would just make what I know. Painted fabric, like performance things, I don't know, vessels. I brought fabric in that I'd sort of draped over... Um, the fields behind my house so they'd have a scent and it was really experimental but it was really valuable and in the year we'd like sort of Wales Bonner was there Grace was there um, Kiko Kostadinov was there Richard Quinn was in print lots of other amazing designers who work in houses now like we were all in this sort of vortex but I had a real feeling that it was like the last sort of melting pot year because I go back there to lecture sometimes now and it's so different like it's so different the pressure as well I didn't realise the pressure when I was there but it's sort of that was fine because all of my friend group we were really supportive and like loving of each other. It was kind of funny because it was such a race to the end. <laughs> and then now it's like you come out and everything is a competition. I think it's a conversation that hasn't happened yet because it's very nuanced. And the problem with class is that it is invisible. There are certain signifiers that people can fetishize, but that can be done by people who aren't working class. So I think... It's this invisible thing that isn't discussed because it actually protects, I would say, over 90% of our industry in fashion and actually in the art world. But I found more of a, you know, it's really the talent that gets you by in the art world, whereas in fashion, it's like in London. Who you know. Yeah. And it's like, th this where is- Where you're from. Yeah. And it's like- Where well, you live. Where you live. And it's grant making authorities who give you some money. Don't investigate how much money you have to begin with. So like- £5,000 to me to do a show, it seems like loads of money, but £5,000 to someone who has been bought a flat or, you know, has a family home here or already has a trust fund or doesn't have the experience of having to work 
is totally different. It's just mm. pocket money that goes on in addition to other things. There's another side to this as well, though. I found this quote from you from an interview you did last year. It really struck me. You said, I didn't want to make my working class or queer identity something to sell. Yeah. And that's really, that's funny because in my career, I've always spoke about queerness. Like, and if you actually look at it, it's not about signifiers from the 70s. It's not about me trying to be a club kid or replicate other designers. None of it is what I'm trying to do. The fact that I am this sort of oddity in what I make is the queer thing coming through and it's respecting where I'm from and never fetishizing it. Like I've never done a collection that's like, here's the tracksuits. You know, and it's even when I looked at, so when my mum used to work in Argos, I did a collection that was really inspired by that. I know about this. And it was the shape of the tunic. Yeah, the shape of the, like the different shapes that were applied to like what it says in a men's contract and it says in a women's contract is mad. It's things about like wearing makeup or heels or the fit of things. And I'm like, that's really interesting. But my education was really valuable to me in that I learned cutting and that has to be applied to everything. I'd never just be like, look at these pictures of us from when we were children and we made those clothes. Yeah, but it's also about being taken care not to commodify things that are actually systemic issues that we need to address in order to make yeah. change. It's not for sale. And if it's not As facilitating a, kind of a conversation. Idea. Yeah, it's not a yeah. kitsch idea. And I think it actually has been fetishized massively. Like I feel like when I've been in Paris at showrooms, you do kind of get wheeled out as the sort of working class one. Here's yeah. Richard. Yeah, here's he Richard. He doesn't come from a rich family. <laughs> yeah, oh, Jesus. There's, there's the one. Um, <laughs> We've got one. Yeah, and even like, I think... <laughs> no, don't. Going through London Fashion Week, like, it's really alarming to me that London's always sold as this hub of immigrants. And like, who are the immigrants at London Fashion Week exactly? Who aren't from London? Who haven't got a... And having a British education is a really specific thing when you're not from Britain, because... You know, I, I actually remember I was working at a luxury goods house and the creative director made a joke to me when he found out that he heard my accent and was like, oh, you're Irish. Do you know how to make a nail bomb? And I literally was like... You bullshit. No, that's true. And I remember the British people in the room laughing and me being like, are you actually joking? Like, this is a civil war that happened in our lifetime that people don't know about. And it's even like when I was in St. Martin's, some people didn't know it was a different country, you know, and, and the conflict. And that's how things are taught people never talk about the sort of London fashion week thing of like nearly everyone's from England or at London even like people live on in London or on the outskirts of London the ones that get to survive you know they've got family homes they can fall back to they can live here and there is all of these things that people would just never think to discuss but they're a real part of immigrants lives it's like if we screw this up we have to leave you know that's real and I think a lot of people don't realize that or mm. it's not given a value let's talk about sustainability mm-hmm. um i started off by saying that i always think of you as someone who really represents sustainable making yeah. and practice and talking about a new sustainable agenda for fashion yeah where do you think sustainability needs to head now i think it's such a wide conversation and none of the real conversations i think are reaching the public domain like for example i have always wanted to make very little and I enjoy it and I make as little as possible. And I've gone down the route of trying to work with recycled fibres, Echo Nil was one or, um, you know, recycled viscose, all of these amazing yarns, hand-woven fabrics, hand-knitted things. Um, and actually a lot of that's in addition to the system that's already happening. And that's sort of the problem, I think, with sustainability now and I remember when I first started with like Fashion East in 2016 and then the British Fashion Council there wasn't a conversation that recently like it wasn't a no one really gave a shit and now it's sort of it's kind of a thing but it's kind of not again because imagery has shifted so now they think there's a new thing to celebrate which is like some fancy 90s or naughty images or whatever or like it's cool to have really obvious references to 90s Prada or Helmut Lang and I just think is it necessary um, I think for me, it's it's. I love making things and I love making clothes and I, I sew a lot of the things that people see in the shows. Like people think it's like a team that make it and it never is. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's like making minimum. Yeah, where's your team? Yeah, there isn't a team. Like, there isn't a team. <laughs> there are machines. I have a freelance um, <laughs> assistant who comes in and, and a freelance pattern cutter who helps with um, commercializing some of the garments, but that's all I've ever had. And then some interns who are on like Erasmus or something come and that's, all it ever was. <laughs> but are you feeling then that the obsession or or that the, yeah, that 
what we're mostly doing now is choose more sustainable materials and then stop. Yeah, I don't know, because I have always, I just think if you're doing sustainability, whatever that means now, because people get away with a lot within it. If you're doing it under the guise of capitalism and growth, it just isn't sustainable. It's the wrong definition. Or we need to use a different word because it's, it's like alongside all the other stuff. And for me, I was always, in the very beginning, I would have a batch of fabric that was from somewhere awful. Like it would be, it would be dead stock and it would be leftover. It would be sponsored by somewhere I used to work. And I, I could make eight garments from it. And there would be eight of those garments. And even now, everything's numbered that I make. And the majority of things, there's one of. And I mean, there's not a sample, there's one. <laughs> and like things that are, I've seen things that have gone to the V&A or to the MoMA in New York and the, these amazing permanent collections, but that is the only one. So I think I'm more automatically in this sort of sphere of like, it's hard to compare it because I've made so little. <laughs> but are you tempted, were you ever tempted to be more commercial in your approach? Because you mentioned mm. you won a lot of accolades and you know, you didn't use language like that, but you did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember the Walmart thing. Yeah. You've had a lot of attention. You could have presumably parlayed that into more collections for matches or whatever. I don't think I was because I don't, I'm not a product designer and I'm not a business person. I'm a maker and an artist and designer. What I don't really mind any of those things, but it's it's not my intention was to ever do that. It's a real the luxury and the joy in what I do is that I get to do it. It's so different from where I started. And I really mean that sincerely. It's like, it blows my mind that that's my job. If you could see where I've come from. And I'm like, that's quite enough. I don't, and I know I don't want 5,000 of those shirts in the world. Can know? we go back to that lovely reference you made earlier to the links between the Irish language and Sanskrit and this idea of sufficiency? Yeah, I think, I think setting a president where like enough is enough and thinking of what I make really consciously because all of the like the that sort of trajectory of designers has never changed even now with all of the all of our awareness of what's going on in the world and how problematic it is but now we have this introduction of social media which in itself is unsustainable like if you think of the huge sort of power plants that have to be built to sustain our addiction to imagery none of this is sustainable and like boohoo all of these like new brands that just blow my mind that they're so and also some Fashion collections look a lot like Boohoo and it's all very confusing for the consumer. It's like, why is that £2,000 and why is that £2? And what I always think... Like, <laughs> it's true. I mean, and I, I mentioned like before... Because actually some things that are £2,000 are still made of polyester and feel like £2,000. And feel like... And it's not about the cut or whatever. And I, I even think like that, like I'm a victim of using polyester because it's dead stock. But I, I, I don't know, I use like six of it and it's like this old, that doesn't mean that it's ever going to biodegrade. That also doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in the world. So even if I produce or select and make a new recycled polyester, all of the polyester that's being made is still being made. In addition to that, it's a really strange system because everyone's keeping up with deadlines that are archaic. Well, one of your answers to it is to just say, well, Sodom, I'm not doing your deadlines. Yeah, exactly. But that is quite a, do you think more people could do it? I mean, it's I coming back to the, it, it's, you're actually, you've carved your own privilege. It wasn't mm. given to you, but you've now reached a place where you get to do that because of your work record, that you've got these connections with the art world, that mm. you've proved that you can create work that will earn its keep in a different way rather than just flogging new trousers or whatever. Yeah. But that, that, I guess what I'm guessing at is if you're listening to this as an emerging designer thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. The pathway is not clear because at some point you're not going to be able to pay the rent. Yeah, it's really not clear. And even now it's not clear. Like I'm always feeling like I'm adapting to something. Mm. And I think if I got too mm. caught up, also like I've, I've experienced that thing of like, there'll be a group of new young designers there's three of them or whatever and I was in that group so many times and it's like, like I've passed it yeah <laughs> I've passed it a bit but also like I never really wanted to be in it in the first place but when you're leaving university your choices are attempt to get one of the prizes or not and take a job and I had come from working in a luxury house I worked at Louis Vuitton on my as a stagiaire for a year so like What's in a the house, it's like a glorified intern but I, like that sounds like you're paid quite well so you, for me it was like I was really a member of a design team of four and got to design things. And it gave me such an understanding of what I wanted to do. It's good. It's good. Like the team was good. I don't love those companies. You can imagine. I struggled a lot with it. But um, again, it was like, 
something that I knew from when I was 15 or whatever. So I thought, wow. And I could say to my mom, oh, I'm not making a mad sculpture that you have to like run around a field in in a video. <laughs> I'm going to go work at Louis Vuitton for a year. And she was like, that's fucking cool. And yeah. I was like, yeah, because everyone knows what it is. And all of that is wrapped up in those decisions, you know. Well, let's finish on that because I think there's something beautiful in in this. Um, I love listening to how you talk about how you got here Mm. and I know that we have lots of listeners who would like advice I also know that we have lots of listeners who don't need advice who don't want to be a designer and who are at different stages of their lives but I still think you can learn a lot from what people have deployed in order to keep at it and I was thinking a lot about resilience just recently this week um just on a personal level like you're always getting knocked back for stuff if you're in creative worlds so I write books (laughs) and you know, on the outside, it might look like, well done, Claire, you do everything. No, my life is just rejection. Every bloody day, someone goes, no thanks or ignores yeah. you. And you have to just get up and take it and go again. Yeah. And I was thinking, this is the creative condition. This is what you ask. For. We don't ask for it, but it's what you have to deal with if you are in the business of making something out of nothing. It's different to being a salaried person it's in so a machine. And, and so, yeah, what I'm asking for me, yeah. not, not for a friend. How do you approach that constant need to stay confident in what you're what you can offer yeah I and mean, I think well I think it's accepting that what you can offer can change and you can move between disciplines and I think I've done that for as long as I can remember so stick to what feels sort of natural to you and even the like the Eileen Gray exhibition was one of those things that blew my mind that I was asked to do an exhibition there because it's like this mythical place that my grandmother used to actually tell me about and leave out the class thing just like so I could imagine someone from Wexford having a job like that. And that's a real act of generosity and love, I think, to tell stories like that. Um, and also my life is still filled with rejection all the time, like the amount of things that don't happen. <laughs> and also like I've been in really crazy opportunities where I've been in the rooms with this sort of bosses at those companies about director roles and I've done it in Paris and I've been there in London and like it's it's not straightforward for me. Like I, I've never looked at that as being my intention. I know that making the work is the actual privilege to be able to do that. And like somehow the way the world operates, being able to keep that sort of childlike thing about you that makes you want to make work or write or Ooh, be engaged. Yeah. Keep the delight. But keep I was thinking, it. yeah, and also I know this is the cliche, but it's absolutely true. You have to come back to your values. You have to know mm-hmm. in yourself why you're doing it. And if you're doing it to chase cat and glory, fine, off you yeah. go. But if not, which I think in our case, yeah. we're doing it for other reasons. It's just yeah. understanding what those values are and then reminding yourself of them. And and then realising that, this is good advice my friend gave me when I was de- depressed because I couldn't sell something at some <laughs> point, can't remember when. She's like, careers in these worlds are a long game. It's about a career over time. Yeah. And looking back and being like, this development and this development. For me, like when I look at the clothes part of it, I'm like, whatever you say and whatever mistakes I might have made, the cutting was always key. That's why I went to universities to learn how to cut. And I can really... You can do it. Cut around a lot of designer. <laughs> like it's my hands. It's like, that's the you thing know that you, makes You the know clue. you're brilliant. And that's actually another thing, isn't it? Knowing when you've nailed something because of how much time you've put into learning yeah. how to do it. And looking at pictures and photocopying things and copying things is never going to be the thing. Like you won't find a fashion reference in this studio. Because I, I, I have the things from my upbringing and the experience of carrying that upbringing with me through these different really tricky environments over here. Um, they're with me all the time and they inform what I do more than anyone else. It's like the people who didn't have an education are somehow the most educated people I've ever come across and given me the best advice, like my grandmother or my mom or my parents or like all of these people and my friend group. They're just like, keep going and you know, people from my year in St. Martin's who aren't, you know, there's, like there's a lot of famous designers that come out of that year, but the ones that are doing other things are equally as brilliant. Like I've yeah. got someone who's an incredible pastry chef, like one of the best and and a poet who's one of my best friends and writes the most beautiful, brilliant poetry. And it's like those creative environments do really feed something in all of you. Just don't expect, I think don't have an expectation of what it will be. You have to sort of listen to when you, are sort of, for me, I, I know when I'm doing something right, when I'm not 
overthinking it. I'm just doing it. Yeah. And the same as with the sculptural practice or with if I'm making a shirt or a jacket, it's like, it just happens. Yeah, and, and creating the environment where you can be that person and do that thing is the tricky part. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you Because I love you